The second section of the wasteland is called a game of chess. A game of chess is a play written by the Jacobean playwright Thomas Middleton. Now, the Jacobeans wrote during James I's tenure as King of England from 1603 to 1625, right at the tail end of Shakespeare's career. Most Jacobean tragedies are earmarked by deceit, infidelity, cruelty, debasing morality, murder, rape, and incest. So they're very adult tragedies. Uh, but the actual real meaning of a game of chess is not the title of the play that uh, Middleton wrote, but of the game of chess that he makes use of when we're looking at his play, Women Beware Women. And in this case, there's a chess game going on uh, between Livia and mother. The mother is the mother-in-law of Bianca, who's a married woman. Livia is engaging the mother-in-law. So the villain of the piece, Gennadazzo, can ask Bianca if she would like to go up and look at some artwork upstairs. Of course, Bianca is kind of naive, and she says, sure. So when she gets up there, uh, the Duke is there, who is with, com complicit with Gennadazzo, and he rapes uh, Bianca because of his powerful social position. There's nothing she can do. And then Gennadazzo says, uh, as she's stumbling down the steps, uh, hark. Listen, someone is coming. I think it is Bianca. Bianca comes down and addresses Gennadazzo and says, Your art is your treachery. And Gennadazzo says, As an aside, 40 weeks hence. In other words, in 40 weeks, uh, you'll give birth to a child if that's the way it's supposed to be. So anyway, that's kind of the, the sketch of how the game of chess plays into Eliot's uh, game of chess. Um, I would also mention that uh, there are some lines from the uh, play that I'll quote. Uh, Here is a duke that will strike a sure stroke for the game anon. Your pawn cannot come back to realize itself. So those are lines from the play. And it's interesting because the Maneuvers on the chessboard iterally reflect the erotic maneuvers in the back room. So, with that said, uh, let's launch into the text of A Game of Chess. Um, first of all, it begins with Shakespeare, um, of all things, Anthony and Cleopatra. I would point out that uh, this is uh, Shakespeare at his lushest, at his most richest in terms of diction, almost to the point of being obsessive. And Eliot's parody certainly picks up on that. So there's a sense of too much artifice, uh, which is what artificial really means. So I'll read the, a small portion of the uh, speech by um, Enabrobus um, describing Cleopatra. And this is in scene, this act, to scene two. And burnished means rubbing something so it's uh, very, very bright. Here it is. The bard she sat in, Cleopatra, like a burnished throne, burned on the water. The poop was beaten gold, purple the sails, and so perfumed that the winds were lovesick with them. For her own person, it beggared all description. She did lie in her pavilion, cloth of gold, of tissue, 
or picturing that Venus where we see the fancy outward nature. On each side were stood pretty dimpled boys, like smiling cupids. Again, that's Anarborus' description of Cleopatra. And you'll notice the, the rich, rich diction, the almost um, over, overwhelming diction when he talks about purple the sails and so perfumed. The winds were lovesick with them. So anyway, Eliot um, takes the cue from Shakespeare and does his own parody of that speech. And uh, it goes like this. And I'll kind of interject uh, uh, some analysis into reading these lines. So instead of a barge, um, the woman that is spoken about, who is personified by Cleopatra, is in a chair. The chair she sat in, like a burnished throne, of course, that comes directly from Shakespeare, glowed on the marble. So that's the marble floor of the table, where the glass, the mirror, held up by standards, by four columns, wrought with fruited vines, from which a golden cupidon peeped out. Another hid his eyes before his wing, doubled in the mirror the flames of a seven-branched calendula, reflecting light upon the table, and the marble table, as the glitter of her jewels in the reflected light rose to meet it, from satin cases poured in rich profusion, and vials of ivory and colored glass. So, again, you'll notice that it is a, a very, very rich, um, almost obsessive kind of use of, of artifice in this section, and it goes on to continue. Uh, she says now, in vials of ivory and colored glass, unstoppered, lurked her strange synthetic perfumes. So there, synthetic is a, a key word in this whole process because it points to the unnaturalness of the whole situation, the over-artifice of the whole situation. So, unstoppered, lurked her strange synthetic perfumes, unguent, powdered or liquored, liquid, troubled, confused, and drowned the sense in odors. So this, uh, this perfume is so powerful, it's, so claw it's, it's clawing to the senses. It drowns the, the uh, sense in odors from the perfume itself. Again, adding to the artificiality of the, of the whole section. So, and from there, uh, there are some more uh, lines of this sort of parody of Shakespeare following that. And I'm going to skip down to where it says, Above the antique mantle, or the table, was displayed, as though a window gave upon a sylvan scene, the change of Philomel. So I'll speak about the change of Philomel now. This is the third transformation, major transformation in the wasteland. We've seen two of them before. Hyseneth at the end of Burial of the Dead, We've seen that Frederick of Naples and his father Alonzo uh, suffered the sea change, rich and strange. Well, this is the third and final transformation in the wasteland, the story of Philomel. So Philomel was a, uh, a young woman whose sister was Procne, who was married to a very cruel man, Tertius. One day Tertius raped, brutally raped Philomel and cut out her tongue so she couldn't speak, couldn't tell anyone who had done it. So she depicted it upon a loom and showed it to her sister Procne, who promptly killed her two kids by Tertius. 
and uh, served them up to him in a dinner. And when he realized what happened, he chased after them. And uh, the gods took mercy on the two of them, Philomel and Procne, and changed Philomel into a nightingale and Procne into a swallow. So the change of Philomel by the barbarous king so rudely forced, in other words, Tertius, this is great. Yet there the nightingale filled all the desert with invaluable voice. So the, the nightingale is the transformation of Philomel into the nightingale. And her voice, her pure voice, fills the entire wasteland, fills all the desert with her invaluable voice. And then, and still she cried, and still the word per, world pursues, jug jug to dirty ears. You have to remember that jug jug was the Renaissance poet's way of describing the sound of a nightingale. I don't know how exactly that came about, but that's what it, the case is. So it's a jug jug to what? To dirty ears. And I would uh, think of a quote by Yeats when he talked about the filthy modern tide. These dirty ears do not hear the jug jug, do not hear the inviolate voice of the, of the nightingale, of Philomel, uh, even when it's singing in the wasteland, the desert. Um, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a total neglect of this um, marvelous, beautiful, tragic transformation that uh, Philomel underwent. And it goes on, and still she cried, and still the world pursues. So it's if uh, the world itself is like Tertius and is uh, pursuing her. So anyway, uh, from that point, I'll go on. And a few lines later, um, maybe four or five lines later, we uh, shift the whole scene uh, dramatically. And uh, there's a, uh, a quote here now, four lines, uh, that are given, I think, they were written or added by Vivian Elliot, Elliot's wife was known to be very high-strung and hysterical. Anyway, it's, however, it's written or spoken by a neurotic woman almost having a panic attack of anxiety. And she seems to be speaking in a mirror because it, it characterizes kind of an inner voice uh, to persona. But she goes on to say, again, I think this is Vivian ghostwriting for Elliot, my nerves are bad tonight. Yes, bad, stay with me. Speak to me. Why do you never speak? Speak. What are you thinking of? What thinking? What? I never know what you're thinking. Think. And then you have the devastating ironic twist of the next two lines, perhaps spoken by her death-obsessed husband. In other words, it, it, the lines are, I think we are in Rats Alley where the dead men lost their bones. Again, quite a devastating ironic twist following those neurotic lines, the emphasis on the dead men lost their bones. That's also connected to the burial of the dead where Ezekiel is in the valley of the bones. And we'll look forward to uh, use of the bones in uh, what the thunder said. So and then we're back to the neurotic woman again. What is that noise? And then the persona, uh, who probably is the one who had spoken about the rat's alley, said in reassurance, the wind under the door. And then the neurotic woman says, what is that noise now? What is that wind doing? And the one who said, I think, about Rats Alley says, nothing, again, nothing, trying to reassure her in her neuroses.
And then you have a, a different kind of, uh, of a persona interjecting here. Um, you know nothing. Do you see nothing? Do you remember nothing? So I think that's, again, uh, would suggest that that's the, the neurotic woman saying those lines. Uh, directly leading up, you know nothing, you see nothing, do you remember nothing? And after this, uh, we have the, another uh, great ironic twist by Eliot. He's so, as I've said before, I think this is uh, the unity on which the whole poem hangs, the whole wasteland hangs, is a statement and then an ironic twist or just the opposite uh, following that. So the ironic twist, do you remember nothing? And then the statement, I remember those are the pearls that were his eyes. Of course, this is from the second transformation, major transformation in the uh, wasteland concerning uh, Ferdinand of Naples and his drowned father, Alonzo. And then it's followed by, again, the neurotic woman saying, are you alive or not? Is there nothing in your head? And then um, you have uh, a great parody of... Uh, of the, the previous reference to the Tempest. It's the Shakespearean rag, a reference to the Shakespearean rag, which is actually a song in the Ziegfeld Follies in 1912. And uh, you can even, I've even heard, uh, you can even go on YouTube and, and actually find the, the actual song. But it goes, oh, 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 that Shakespearean rag. It's so elegant, it's so intelligent. And then there's a shift now, uh, back to the neurotic woman, but she sounds much like Alfred J. Prufrock in his inactivating neurosis, his indecisions. She goes on to say, What shall I do now? What shall I do? I shall rest out as I am and walk the street with my hair down so. What shall we do tomorrow? What shall we ever do? If you've read Prufrock, you recognize that tone and those words very, very succinctly. And then kind of a, as an answer to what shall we ever do is the flat statement, the hot water at 10, and if it rains, a closed car at 4. So um, Pound excised the hot water bottle at 10. He said just the hot water at 10. I don't think the rain in this particular situation has any import uh, outside of the fact that the people uh, aren't rained upon. So I don't know if the... If it's of any consequence, really, whatsoever. But uh, the final two lines here, and we shall play a game of chess, pressing lidless eyes and waiting for a knock upon the door. And here I think uh, this is perhaps after the uh, arriving with the car, but it's very important to realize I think this is a modern juxtaposition of the game of chess from Middleton into a, again, a modern context. And we shall play a game of chess. So you have two men and a mother-in-law again and a, a, a daughter-in-law. One of the men is engaging the mother-in-law in a game of chess, while the other man is seducing the daughter-in-law in a nearby bedroom. And so, pressing lidless eyes on the chess and waiting for a knock upon the door. And I think that knock upon the door is a prearranged signal from the man inside the room with the young girl, uh, signaling that, his, that the seduction is over and that he's going to emerge and he needs his friend to help cover for him. And in the last section of the game of chess, there's a major shift. Um, we're leaving behind the chess game 
uh, modern context of the chess game that I mentioned, pressing lidless eyes and waiting for a knock upon the door. Again, that knock upon the door, I think, is a prearranged signal by the man who has finished his seduction of the young girl um, to the, the other man who's been engaging her mother-in-law to um, play in a game of chess. So she won't suspect anything. So but there's a major shift now. There's a whole shift of the vocale. Where, we, where, where Elliot takes us is kind of to a, a lower class bar on uh, somewhere in, in downtown London, perhaps. Um, and the situation is there are two women, two probably middle-aged women, or maybe not middle-aged, maybe younger than that, but they're talking about uh, a, a third woman, Lil's uh, abortion. And I will just highlight some of the lines here, because I don't think everything needs to be discussed. But uh, I would suggest that all throughout this section, in capital letters, there's the quote, hurry up, please, it's time. It's repeated often through these next lines. And that simply is the bouncer or the bartender saying it's time, the bar is closing down, you have to leave now. So I'll start. Uh, when Lil's husband got demobbed, I said, and demobbed, of course, is being discharged from the army, you'll want to know what you've done with that money he gave you to get yourself some teeth. Of course, she used the money for the abortion. She goes on, he's been in the army four years. He wants a good time. And if you don't give it to him, there are others will, I said. Hurry up, it's time. You ought to be ashamed, I said, to look so antique. And her, Lil, only 31. I can't help it, she said, Lil, pulling a long face. It's them pills I took to bring it off, she said. George, she had five already and nearly died of young George. And this is Lil. The chemist said it would be all right, but I've never been the same. And then you're finishing up with another hurry up, it's time, please. And then you have kind of a, a shift in the focus between the two women discussing Lil to Lil's own voice itself in the present tense. And it goes, well, that Sunday Albert was home. They had a hot gammon, which is a hot uh, ham. And they, his relatives, asked me to dinner to get the beauty of it hot. And then it finishes up with, hurry up, please, it's time. Hurry up, please, it's time. And then you have a congregation of three people outside the bar. They're saying goodnight to each other. And what's especially noted, it's, it's kind of a English limey slang, in other words. It's goodnight, Bill. Goodnight, Lou. Goodnight, May. Goodnight. Ta-ta. Goodnight. Good night. And of course, the terribly ironic twist that Elliot throws in is from the high art of, the, of Hamlet uh, with uh, Ophelia's last mad rant before she commits suicide. One of the most powerful scenes in all of uh, playwriting where she says and emphasizes, Good night, ladies. Good night, sweet ladies. Good night, Good night, as opposed to good night, ta ta, good night, good night. 
So I think Elliot's making that parody very clear with, the, with what he chose to do from Ophelia's last words. So anyway, um, that's the end of the, uh, the game of chess. And uh, I look forward to starting the fire sermon the next time we meet. So thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed yourself. Bye-bye.